Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Good afternoon. Should have been good evening, but we never got to it. So here it is, COVID-1929. So this is the 29th COVID. Echo bullet point podcast is really what you're trying to say. I know. I was got kind of lost. I went off in the weeds. <laughs> COVID-19, that was, that was like months ago. <laughs> yeah, that was 10 times ago. So we had a lot of things going, and we're going to try and summarize it to make it quick and short today. Um, first, uh, Denise Wittenberg, she's from the University of Minnesota. She has a really cool title, which I don't have on mine. I do. She is the Administrative Research Director. Ah. It's awesome. That'd be, that'd be good if I was that Kurt Devine, Administrative, what was that? Research Director. Research Director. No. Anyway, so she said that there's this grant going on, University of Minnesota, of course, Broadway Medical Center in Minneapolis received a grant to collect data and reduce racial inequities and disparities involving the African Americans. So they're looking at the implicit biases, underlying healthcare issues pre, during, after COVID. Um, one of the investigators actually is, of course, Dr. Renee Critchlow, whom we love and adore, the outgoing president of the Minnesota Academy of Family Physicians. So it's, you know, Broadway Clinic, of course, was the one that was destroyed. And so it's just really cool that they're actually starting a research project out of a clinic that is basically starting over. Yeah, it got pretty badly damaged. So, um, and again, it's going to evaluate those social determinants of health. And I think that uh, she talked a little bit about when we're going to start seeing the results. And I don't think it's next week. I think it's the week after. Right. Where they're going to start talking about the results of all these different studies that uh, they've been doing. Or the preliminaries anyway. So then we had Anu, Dr. Anu Kalaskar. Kalaskar? Kalaskar. Kalaskar. I wrote it down. It sounds like, yeah. And she is the co-medical director of infectious disease at children's hospitals and clinics. And so she came to talk a little bit about what's happened with all of the pediatric stuff. So, you know, she had talked a couple of months ago. And so she started really by talking about that epidemiology of just COVID and looking at the rates from June 1st to August 2nd and how the increases have like doubled in that two months and then how there's just been an upgoing of, you know, especially children's positives um, ever since basically the beginning to mid-June. And that was with the whole changes in social distancing. And but yet as a country, as a children's hospital, as a state, more than country, I guess. Yeah. How the hospitalizations and patients has all remained still pretty steady. Yeah. And actually uh, today in Minnesota, still over 800 cases. So we're getting a lot more cases. Uh, but she talked a little bit about how from 0 to 17, still only 4% of the positive cases uh, are in that age range. So, And the deaths, uh, this is at children's anyway, I believe, not just, not the, well, no, this is CDC data. This is yep. national data. 0 to 17, the death rate in kiddos, under again, under the age of 17 is less than 0.1%. Yeah. So obviously super low risk. However, if it's your kid, it's... 100%, but... Yeah. And they, uh, she actually talked a little bit about the seroprevalence uh, prevalence of uh, antibodies to uh, COVID-19, COVID and <laughs> geez, I'm all messed up. And uh, they actually did, a, there was a study done in the U.S. Uh, March 23rd to May 12th. Uh, and this was actually published in JAMA, 
and how they did this from 10 different sites. And it's uh, interesting, depending on where you were in the country, went between 1% and 7%. And I think, again, Minnesota, right in that 2 2.5%. But, but this, though, was blood-drawn like they, this was like a retrospective. They yeah. took blood drawn at all these sites just from random other reasons. It was not necessarily a COVID related illness. And did I forget to mention that? Yes. Okay. And so, yeah, it was way high to have the seroprevalence. But again, they don't really know what that means because, you know, was what about waning immunity? Um, was this picking up asymptomatic cases? Are there a lot of false negatives? Um, and then she did mention that in this age group. Um, that there could definitely be false positives because of cross-reactivity with other coronaviruses. But still, it's still that seroprevalence is very similar to all comers. Yeah. And, of course, then she talked a little bit about what has happened since she'd been on last, really over the last couple of months, uh, and how the number of cases just has uh, really gone up. Uh, we've done, well, the total cases, not just, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, you got confused. And... Uh, it was really pretty interesting when we when they were there last time. We had twenty five thousand positives now at fifty six thousand. So uh, from really six one to eight three, so two months. Yeah, um, and then comparing like our state to other states, they kind of did another research thing looking at six different states in the country and how Minnesota has kind of held steady at that two point four percent zero prevalence versus you know in New York back whenever that was it was much higher, 20%, but how Minnesota's kind of kept holding steady there. And, you know, as Mike, our good friend Mike Osterholm said, you need like 60% to even have some type of, you know, protection. So where's Mike? Where's Mike? We're like way off still. But anyway, up until recently, so as of June 1st when she was on, you know, there were still no deaths under the age of 29 in Minnesota, which is a huge age group, of course. Um, Unfortunately, there have been, there's been one death now in an infant s- since then um, in Western Minnesota, but there and there's been four deaths in the 20 to 29 age group. There's still been no deaths in that school age, six to 19 age group. Yeah. So lately, well, children's seen a bit of an uptick, and I think uh, everybody has uh, in those younger age groups. And you know, children's had been using both the one-hour rapid and also sending them out to mail like everybody is. And, well, the problem is everybody's running out of reagents, so they're not doing less of that. You know, I think for us as well, less of the one hours. And she went through a lot of their demographics, which were just kind of, kind of, I thought the one neat thing was that they started to separate, you know, the patient surveillance they do by um, ethnicity, but they started to separate it by language as well. Um, English is the highest, followed by Spanish, Somali, and then Karen, which I've never even heard of before. Yeah. Um, but, you know, how they break down their data. And this can all be found at the children's dashboard. So rather than us trying to explain these cute drawings, go to Children's Hospital and look at their um, COVID dashboards. It's it's pretty, pretty neat. Um, and then it was my favorite journal of this entire thing. Um, it's at the bottom of that other page you just had in your hand. Uh. So this came from the Pediatric Infectious Disease Journal. And they looked at why kids potentially could be less affected by COVID, whether it's differences in their immune system, that whole stronger innate immune system, lower comorbidities, um, different pathogen exposures. So maybe they do have more cross-reactivity to other coronaviruses, which just maybe gives them a little bit more protection. Um, They're little Petri dishes of infections, which may somehow give them protection because they're more colonized. Just keep them in the basement. (laughs) Petri dishes. (laughs) 
Um, and then they're less likely to be the primary case in any home. Now, again, this could change now that kids are going to potentially be going back to school. And then I think the biggest one, which has maybe a little bit more ability to test, um, is the difference in ACE2 receptors, fewer and lower affinity and all of that. But I just think this was, um, it was very interesting just to kind of look at that. And again, I think the next couple of months, the journal articles that we'll review on Sundays will be super awesome when it comes to kids as they're going to start doing a lot of studies with schools and how that goes. Yeah, I think still the study that we looked at last weekend that was the most interesting was the one that showed the amount of virus load in in the nasal pharynx of young kids and often 10 to 100 times higher than an adult. And But yet it doesn't seem like they transmit it quite as much still that or data. Or get sick as much. Or get so. sick as much. So it's very crazy. It's just like looking at the RNA sitting on a table, but what does it mean if there's no active virus there? It's just so crazy. Oh, I'm so confused. So (laughs) Switzerland, uh, uh, Pete's Journal, actually released an article as well, uh, and they actually looked at 40 patients, and she talked about this this little study with a median age of about 11 and talking about median median symptom uh, onset. And I think that was really interesting because they looked at family clusters. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so all of these kids, like Kurt said, they looked at, basically the bottom line is that a majority of the kiddos that tested positive when they looked at the rest of the family members, they typically were not the first affected case in the family. They either got symptoms at the same time as somebody else or somebody else brought it into the home. Yeah, the graph was very confusing and I I had a lot of difficulty. Of course, I don't have glasses that were perfect, so I couldn't see it perfectly, but... Yeah, it just, it was just... I don't know. They, they concluded that kids don't generally transmit to adults. It's the other way around. Generally. Generally. However, you know, the bottom line that was kind of pointed out as well is this could be an artifact of kids being home and adults being the ones that were out grocery shopping and continuing to work. And, and so really kind of just, again, being more aware of that and what's going to change now in the next couple of months. So the question is, what does it mean? I don't know. We don't know. Oh, we got all this information. It's like, well, I don't know. So... Uh, children actually, uh, well, let's just move a little bit to some of their algorithms. They actually have developed a lot of things that they're, I think, obviously willing to share, although most of the hospitals are not taking care of the critically ill COVID patients. Uh, but they talked a little bit about the dexamethasone, the recovery study, and how they're now using dexamethasone and remdesivir. And so I think that, uh, you know, they're looking at all these different studies. And, and that recovery study, of course, again, they went through all the different Types of things they were using, and hydroxychloroquine. Did I just say that? Yeah, but that recovery study, like they dropped the hydroxychloroquine really early because yeah. it was. Pretty so they're much not using not that helping. at all. It's still the other drugs, most and mostly really there. I think remdesivir and dexamethasone at the right times. Yes, you know, and again on these algorithms, which I won't belabor, but it breaks it down into these are the labs that you get over and over and over. Like there is a list of labs that. Our standard and should be gotten on pretty much any kid that you even consider COVID, you know, the CBC, diff, CRP, CMP, kiddos, they're getting IgG, and then, you know, all the other ones, depending on severity. Um, talk about concurrent pneumonias, which is less rare than you would think it would be compared to like influenza, where secondary pneumonia or co-infected with the pneumonia is much higher. So, again, can you be co-infected with influenza? Yes. Is it likely to have a pneumonia on top of it? No. Yeah, and I don't think we need to belabor the recovery trial. We've talked about that multiple times. I think just the key uh, being that there's really no benefit in patients who didn't get respiratory support, who who weren't on respiratory support. That's that's the key. 
uh, most of the improvement was in the patients who were ventilated. Ventilated or on oxygen. oxygen yep. And the number needed to treat, I'm just, that's the yeah. last statement. The number needed to treat only eight ventilated patients and 25% patients requiring oxygen prevented one death, which I think those are not bad numbers. No. That's, you know, depending on how busy you are in your hospital when you have, you know, a lot of people, like think about a New York hospital. I mean, that, those are not high numbers needed to treat to, to protect a person. So. Yeah. And then the, she talked a little bit about MIS dash C, mm-hmm. you know, the whole kid thing and uh, the multi-inflammatory thing. So I think that, you know, really the important thing that they were talking about is watching for it. You know, this whole fever greater than 24 hours. You know, these kids are more likely to have GI symptoms, chest pain, mel- mm-hmm. mental status changes. Yeah, the, there's a really cool chart that was really complicated, but GI and then cardiovascular, you know, are just the big thing. And it's funny, I went to daycare this morning and I daycare provider asked me, is diarrhea a symptom? And I'm like, yes, especially in kids, not at my daycare, but just in general, she was just curious. Um, But in Minnesota, there's only been 16 or 17 kids around then that have had MISC in our state thus far. Um, They've taken care of five to 10 Minneapolis kids, which tells us that if only half of them have even made it to the, the cities. They haven't been that severe. Um, and it is, to remind everybody, it is a reportable disease right now. But to not forget about other things like sepsis and toxic shock, Kawasaki, all those other things um, that could be there. And then there's a lot of labs if you think a kid has um, MISC. But just remember that typically it's a past infection like yeah. it's going to be 70 percent have either past or current covid so you got to get the the igg you got to get that antibody because most of them aren't going to have a positive covid swab no and again that high probability of cardiac involvement about 80 percent of these kids so important to be looking for that 20 percent of them needing vents that's a big number that's a big number unfortunately here we go again males more affected median age 18 you know? But it's us guys. Why? Because you that. only need one man per like a hundred <laughs> women. Yeah. All right. We need to like do that. But what they did say, and I don't really love this, but it's good for especially when you're thinking about going back to school, I guess, is that, you know, the kids with underlying health issues are going to get more COVID issues. But when it comes to MISC, it's just kind of any kid. It's all comers. Yeah. Um, except more except often. obesity. Yep. So... So then she talked a little bit about school. Uh, we're yeah. still working on, I think next week is the school people. Yes. We have school the, and daycare. They're going to address both, uh, which I think is super cool. Yeah. So we're going to have Department of Education and. I think they kind of cover both things. They're covering both things. So we're going to have that next week. So I think that's going to be great. But uh, she really talked about how this whole decision making on what to do has really gone crazy. I, I think it's going to be. It's going to be very interesting when you start bringing kids together, what you're going to see in communities, right? Well, and two things I want to say about that, just because I've had long conversations with people from our school. Um, The one thing that they're using is this data for the K-12 schools, this 14-day COVID case rate by county. And so they have it broken down by how many cases per 10,000. There's a number. And so if you have fewer than 10 cases, everybody should, in, within a 14-day period, if you have fewer than 10 cases, everybody should be, you know, in learning. And it's a percentage rate. I think Morrison County is at like three, 
so it's less than this 10 number. Um, but then they break it down by how many in this rate range you have. You know, once you get to the point that you're at a 50 plus number, everybody needs to be distance learning. But they're really taking into account that the older kiddos tend to get more sick than the younger kiddos. So um, the trans, you know, the, the transition to distance learning happens first at the upper levels rather than the elementary school. But definitely check out that 14-day COVID case rate by county. And it is interesting for people who have kids, each school, every school, private, charter, whatever school, has to have a preparedness plan. Like they literally have to break it down by explaining lunchrooms, explain each grade room in your school, explain gym class, explain music class. They have a plan for this. So I don't know if that's going to be made public knowledge or if it's just going to be that that's what they have to tell the state. But yes. Mm. <laughs> so that's where it ends. And uh, what do we have coming next week? So we have- oh, can I just mention one more thing? One. Just because it was a question that was asked about co-infection. And she said, you know, all the studies so far show like right around 3 to 40%, which is a huge range. But co-infection is a huge deal. And so this this is kind of that fear is that what do you do when it's cold and flu season? And one big thing that they're pushing already is obviously getting flu shots because if we can at least try, and hopefully the flu shots are really good one this year. But there, of course, is not point-of-care COVID testing. So I think what's going to end up happening from a primary care pediatrics point of view, you're going to get your strep, maybe your RSV, your influenza, your COVID. You're going to be able to rule everything else out, and they're still going to have to be in quarantine. But if anything's positive, you still have to be in quarantine until the COVID comes back. So here's what I think. We we actually had read stuff very early on that said they could get co-infection. It took a long time to give that any traction uh, in in hospitals and clinics. I think most people were like, hmm. nope, they got influenza, we're sending them out. But again, think about them all. They can be together. Right. And I think she addressed that. Like if they have a positive influenza, they need to be separated anyway. Yep. And by the time that they would be able to go back technically for influenza, you'll have your COVID back because that's a few days anyway. I think what we're going to see as well is how do people do that get both? Yeah. I don't think we know that yet, uh, what what the numbers are going to be because there's not enough, although there is influenza in some other countries right now. Uh, Is that going to change things, especially for different age groups if they get both? That's so true. Stay and, tuned. And then I think I think it's so funny because these poor educators who went into education so they can maybe have summers or they usually get a little bit more summer. They've had less summer than I've had. Um, but how all of these preparedness plans they need to have in place, how it's all going to go out the window at some point because the numbers are going to change, the rates are going to go up, it's going to be cold and flu season. Like, yeah, what are they going to do if I, they get more sick? And I tend to pr- procrastinate a little bit. I hope my mom's not listening because <clears throat> she knows that. We all know that. Like, but we all do. if I was making the preparedness thing, we wouldn't start school till like, December. So that would be the problem. I'd, so, I'd be like, I'm still working on the preparedness. <laughs> I thought you meant, like, that's your recommendation. I was like, oh, let's start in the middle of flu season. Okay. No, I just wouldn't get it done. That's, so, that's, that's so true, actually. It is. Um, but, yeah, it's you, you're just going to volunteer to homeschool my kids, right? Oh, that's high on my list. So we will see everybody next Tuesday. We'll be talking about education and daycare. And I think next Tuesday, who is, or Wednesday, who's doing Opioid Echo? I'm blanking. I think Charlie's the following weekend, but 
Ah, we'll say it next time. Someday. Oh, Don Stater. Oh, ER Don Stater. from, oh, this is good. He developed all these protocols in Colorado and just how they've helped with mitigating overprescribing out of the ERs, but not only that, but how they came up with a plan to help these patients. Like, it's cool. He's a great speaker. Yeah. Um, we, so we're starting we our tour Illinois. of the U.S. We met him in Illinois. We, we should meet him in Illinois, right? We were right. speaking in Illinois, and we ran into him, and he was super cool and smart. So And then Illinois locked down for COVID the <laughs> next day. Yeah, we stepped on an airplane, and the whole place shut down. Can't so, help it. Sorry. Yeah. So, yeah, and then Sunday, of course, we'll summarize all the articles from this week. So, yeah, we'll see you later. And have battle legs take over. <laughs> I was like, what are you going to say? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>